Hey gang, welcome to Big Brother and the Hodling Company, a podcast about music and Web3 trying to fend off Big Brother. I'm a Keegan Voice. Today I spoke with Austin Roby, who's one of today's champions of platform cooperativism and collective internet culture. Austin is the co-founder of Ample, which is a web-based platform for direct community support of musicians that formed as a collectively owned co-op. He's also part of the founding squad for MetaLabel, which is an organization that builds resources, tools, and infrastructure for collectives and creative communities, often within the Web3 space. We talked about elevating the concept of collective ownership as a cultural value, as well as his evolving perspective on the role of venture capital and a love for music whose story's beginnings includes bringing a Smashing Pumpkins mixtape to the third grade. Hope you all enjoyed the conversation. Here we go. All right, hey, Austin, great to have you here. Hey, good to be here. As always, I like to start at the beginning and just, you know, get a sense of, you know, where you grew up, you know, kind of your background and, you know, when your relationship with music started. Uh, well, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Um, and which is kind of like a, it's like a metal town. Um, there's a lot of Tejano music and Mexican culture there too. Um, and, and country. It's like, uh, right. Interesting combination. Grew, grew up listening to, um, my mom listens to like country radio. So I like also just weirdly know a lot of country songs and lyrics. Um, and my relationship to, to music um, I remember uh, I was one of the first people burning CDs for people, so I learned how to make tapes and burn CDs. Um, so that was, um, I feel like that was a, a source of, of pride for me for just like tinkering and learning how to do that. Mm-hmm. I like, uh, I made a Smashing Pumpkins cassette mixtape and brought it to third grade class <laughs> to like play. Um, and was, uh, uh, in eighth grade, I had a, one punk friend, his name is Max. Um, so in our, our reading class, he, um, he would wear like Operation Ivy and like Ted Kennedy's and no effects shirts. I think he had a cool stepdad <laughs> that introduced him to this cool. stuff. And he... Gave me a Dead Kennedys cassette tape. This makes me sound really old, but I, th- I think this was, I'm 34. I don't remember when this is like 2002, something like that, 2001. And um, I remember playing it and just being like repulsed by it. I was like, this is awful. This is terrible. And um, And then listening to it a third time and a fourth time and be like oh this is this is really cool <laughs> kind of like how unpalatable it is to people it's like a refined taste or something mm. um and so yeah i feel like i feel like i need to reach out to to, to max <laughs> give him a shout out because i just remember that being like very uh influential for me um i was in um uh a band in high school we played, you know, shows for high school friends. Um, we weren't good at all, but it was it was just fun. And um, and then um, moved to New York to go to college. I studied architecture at Pratt uh, Institute in Brooklyn. Uh, it's like an art and design school. And then uh, found myself. In in Brooklyn, where there was so much DIY activity happening, um, in like the late aughts, right, like early tens, there's so much stuff happening, and so that was just like a source of of energy. I think like it's a lot of kind of the indie sleaze activity, um, and just the, like DIY venues popping up all over. It was like a petri dish. Or like yeah. whack-a-mole, like they would just show up and get shut down, and another <laughs> one would show up again. Um, 
And so it felt like that movement and that time, even though I think you're kind of hard pressed to find any long-standing legendary or highly influential bands that came out of Brooklyn in that time, I still feel like it was like a important time. Uh, So I feel like it influenced me quite a bit um, for like the kinds of like the attitude behind it, which is like, you don't, you don't need to ask for permission. You can start your own thing. You don't have to be credentialed to start a venue or to be booking shows like you could, mm-hmm. you know, there was uh, like an ongoing DIY series called bikes in the kitchen, which was just this guy, Carlos who had bikes in his kitchen would throw shows in his kitchen or someone started a venue called above the auto parts store. Cause it was just like a place above an auto parts store. <laughs> and I just like, love that that energy so i feel like that's what was what what felt cool to me about about discovering like a a music scene in new york yeah well so many good memories in that journey i remember the first time i heard too drunk to fuck and i think it was around like like in a similar age where i discovered the dead kennedys i think it was it was like a random lime wire download or something and yeah i remember it being just kind of off the wall and like everything against what you know i'd been raised to like but you know there's something so in your face about it that you just like you know you listen to it a few times and you're drawn to the energy of it you know it's raw (laughs) yeah and that was like um when um uh, bush was president during the iraq war so like jello biafra also had a bunch of political like podcast type talks that you could download off of LimeWire um, and no effects being I mean this was just like 13 year old me just thinking it was the like the coolest stuff but then I, there weren't many punk people at my high school it was like I never really I, I, I have like a, a feeling of feeling like I missed out a bit because I, I know people that I know now that had uh, a lot more people that were into their specific music or had like a, a scene in high school. And I didn't really, it wasn't really that um, at my high school. Um, so I didn't really like necessarily find like a tribe that was oriented around music Yeah. Um, until later. Yeah. The same. Yeah. I mean, in my high school, it was a very small town in Minnesota and it was also a lot of country music and like, pop music, maybe some new metal here or there, but that was, that was about it. it was, you know, sort of a similar journey. It took moving to New York and getting into the DIY scene. I, I remember going to a rave in the back of a crown chicken one time. It's like, this is, this is amazing. You like come out to the crown chicken, people are just getting chicken. And then, you, you know, you go through a door and all of a sudden you're in a rave and there's like 40 people packed into this back room. I, you know, that's the kind of magic that I think brings people together, that kind of spirit. Love that. So I'm curious, so after, you know, you studied architecture, you, you know, were diving into this, you know, to some of the DIY scenes in Brooklyn. Um, when did Ample come about? And I know, uh, you know, I've always, you know, I've known about Ample for a long time. Well, first, if you could talk a little bit about what it is and, and how it emerged. And it's always been committed, you know, to staying 100% artist and worker owned. And, you know, I think that's not something that, that, that a lot of startups do, you know, and I'm curious, like how you were exposed to, you know, things like co-ops and that, that ideology and, and what, you know, what about it allured you so that you wanted to commit, you know, to this path? Ample came together with a few people at the start and it became a, a very collaborative project with um, a lot of contributors and, and people helping with it. Um, part of the core group of people helping start it was uh, Colin Lewis and Ryan Deshawn and all people that have um, had history playing in bands as well and friends playing music and it um, really just uh, yeah, started as conversations of, of one observing this um, kind of Patreon-like model as something that is seems 
relatively better than other models of just direct patronage that isn't uh, that is more reliant on like um, this kind of like emotional reward that you get from just directly supporting or having a real direct relationship with an artist. Yeah, it's kind of just like, what if we just did one, did something like this that people didn't get nerd chills, like using like Patreon? Just like, what would that, what would it look like to make something that was like structurally unique or could like was was trustworthy, but not trustworthy because you could point to people and say it was like trustworthy beyond relying on somebody's goodwill or personality or like promises even just as something that like you could point to and being saying this is structured differently so it, it um for us starting it we kind of treated it like a research project hmm. for a long time just being like how could this work and early on landing on this um inspiration of shared ownership and that's basically as far as that idea first went. We're just like, oh, that would be cool. Hmm. Um, that feels like it would align interest pretty well. How do you how do you do that? And then it ended up just being kind of a long um, idea maze of figuring out not only what um, is possible, but what is maybe practical. And I think we just went back and forth and just you know really like landed on cooperatives and digging much deeper into, oh, yeah, cooperatives are a very interesting model. I had only really heard of co-ops just from knowing people in Brooklyn that were members of the Park Slope Food Co-op and mm. would work at an hour shift, shift every month. Mm. And I just thought that sounded so cool to be like a part of a community like that. And just kept digging. And eventually we just kind of threw the practicality concerns out the window. We just said like, oh yeah, well this model seems like the best one. Hmm. We have no idea how to fundraise for it. We have no idea how to structure it. Um, there's very little precedence for how anything like this could work and there's no exit built in. So there's no real way to like have any outsized financial gain from this, but let's just go with this. It feels right. And so that was just the compass of the project, which was like, mm. well, what feels right to us? I devoured so many Fred Wilson blogs of how to start a startup and then kind of like internalized that. And then just pretty much threw all the advice out the window and just like ended up just trusting our guts and just saying like, what, what feels right? Like what, what, which, yeah, like what, what feels good to us was the ultimate kind of litmus test for making any decision after you decided you know on the co-op model as you know as being the structure that felt right you know for you to build ampled around you know did you find that that when you started talking to artists and started to cultivate community that that you know that that messaging resonated did you find that artists resonated with the fact that you were a co-op and you know was it very easy to understand like the distinction between um you know, building out a profile and creating content at a place like Ampled versus doing it, you know, a place like Patreon, where the platform is taking a cut of, you know, your relationship with the people. Did, you know, was that like very easy for people to understand at first? Um, yes and no. So I remember that being a goal, which was to say, could, could we go to a loud bar? and explain this and someone would understand if they've had two drinks. That's um, a great way to think about it. And that's uh, pretty much one of the reasons why we threw out some of the more complicated models, which would include like vesting restricted stock units hmm. or something like that. How do you explain that? No, no chance. So the, the, the model is more easy to understand, which is to say, yeah, you join and you get 10 supporters and you become a co-owner and you get a vote and you get one share. And that just is way easier to understand uh, conceptually. 
So there is like this, I think that 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 is something that is intuitively understandable. It depends on who you're talking to, of how excited they get about that. So some people, yes, some people it has drawn people in. Um, I think the, the, the tricky part of understanding why that's important is you, it kind of implies an understanding of existing startup and existing startup funding and ownership models, which like is not an area of fluency that, that most musicians care about. So, so it required kind of outlining how startups even work and saying, well, there's multiple rounds of funding and each round of funding typically give up maybe like 10 or 15% or more of a company. And you keep doing that and then you end up with investor ownership. And when investors own a platform rather than the people that rely on it, you know, if there's a difference between what a decision that may have a conflict between the interest of one versus the other, well, then the ownership wins. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah, it was, there was a level of education of just explaining why ownership is important. And it's, it's a big, um, I'd say we're not fully there yet of it being an, a cultural value that is driving a lot of decisions. So we often just ask the question of who owns it. And it occurs to people um, that that's a question that they've never asked before. Hmm. Um, who owns Spotify? Mm-hmm. Um, who owns Bandcamp? Um, so, so I think like these are, these are questions that's not often asked. So it's kind of, in some ways difficult to clarify a solution when people don't understand it as a problem right yet uh, however i think there is a part of us that that understands this intuitively of collective ownerships is like a, a real solution um for for our own kind of collective agency and and dignity and capturing value that is being extracted from us mm-hmm. is just it's kind of a long-term challenge um how, how do how do you even elevate this as a cultural value so i think some people identify it with it very strongly and other people i think just have never even considered it so it's part of the challenge right yeah, and I, I mean, you know, ever since then, you you certainly have elevated it, you know, as a cultural value, and that's, you know, become, you know, and this has become an idea that you have become a champion of in terms of, you know, talking about collective ownership, you know, in various capacities. And I'm, you know, I'm curious to hear, like, as you know, as you dove into building around this cooperative structure, you know, how did your interest you know, and your knowledge base of this grow and expand, you know, into something that you really wanted to pursue, um, you know, across the organizations that, that you've been part of ever since then? I think like one of the reasons to first explore it was like uh, from the mindset of a kind of David and Goliath <laughs> type, um, like almost like a positioning. It's like, well, well, if we're going to make something, why would anyone care? Like, it has to be different. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of seemed at first like, oh, well, this makes sense. This would be more fair. I like the, how this sounds. And maybe that's the reason why people would sign up and join in the first place. Maybe that's just the reason for this existing. Mm-hmm. The collective ownership is fundamentally like, a an answer to so many problems today of wealth inequality um i think it's a core part of economic justice social justice racial justice like this is this is um ownership like looking researching more being like well this is this is the answer uh 
for for economic power and political power um and and it's possible just by joining together um that like if you can imagine a like collectively owned or cooperative version of any kind of service it would be in, it would be i think a pretty bright future if there was a competitive version of any service that you could actually have a a say or, or a voice or a um be able to capture the value that you are generating as part of this enterprise mm-hmm. so yeah i think like my own journey or all of us in ample just saw it as oh this is interesting to this is um this is something that could have much wider implications for a broader online creative ecosystem mm-hmm. uh and and i think that we kind of saw the project as like a vessel for this in a way where we saw um a kind of cultural impact of elevating values as being distinct from how much money is running through the platform mm. and and saw it as like a probably the biggest impact that we could make is just by demonstrating this model in some way and and if we could make a small dent in the way people viewed how platforms can work or how like what purpose they serve if you could just move over to window just slightly hmm. so that people could just be slightly more imaginative about what a platform could be then that it kind of like as a project grew for us to 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 think about that um like just as much if not more as the actual kind of operations of the platform itself hmm. cool i love that yeah, I mean, it feels like, you know, a route that once you go down, it, you know, just asking that question, who owns it, it can really reframe your entire perspective of the way the world works. I, you know, you use an example like, who owns Spotify? And, and we've sort of accepted this narrative of like the wealthy startup founder. And like, you know, looking at Daniel Eck, he made like a, whatever it was, like $3 billion, you know, like some gone, like, like he made an offer for some, for some ungodly amount of money to buy like a premier league team. And, you know, at the same time, people also aren't quite aware of the plight of the artist and how Spotify really isn't making them any money, but they're still willing to tolerate an action like that, where one person who owns this platform, just, just from that ownership is able to acquire that much wealth. And place it elsewhere you know not actually serving the you know you know the constituents of the platform so to speak. we made a we made like an instagram um um gallery or whatever it's called when you have multiple pictures in one uh a carousel yeah of um of the who owns spotify and just showed all the multinational investment banks and okay. the percentage shares um and at their current value, how many streams it would take wow. to make up that much money, and it's basically wow. it's basically streaming in like since before prehistory began. It's <laughs> that's it's basically what it what it equals. Um, and yeah, I I also had had written a uh, an op ed for Music Ally about wow. artist ownership of Spotify, just because I. I saw again, like a lot of artists say asking for more fractions of a cent per play. And I just thought that was kind of like the, not the right answer. It just kind of seemed like this futile acceptance of, of the model itself. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, so the the op-ed argues for ways to achieve governance representation at Spotify, or uh, an artist creation of an artist trust that holds Spotify stock ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're really not there yet um, mm-hmm. with this being something that even approaches 
a set of demands or being top of mind for artists, but I think that it should be. Um, and I think if you ask the question of who owns it, you know where to direct your grievances much more effectively. If yeah. you're adding Spotify on Twitter, I think that's less effective than going to, um, um, what's it, um, Bailey Giffords? I forgot the, like, one of the, the biggest shareholders. If you just go in front of their offices mm. and embarrass them mm-hmm. and point out their own kind of um, corporate responsibility um, text from their website and put it in front of them, then I think like you're more likely to affect Spotify by going to the owners than just creating a kind of like spectacle. Uh, And last year, I remember having like a pretty unpopular opinion that was critical of Bandcamp, Mm -hmm. which is to say like, like if you really like a service, I know Bandcamp got a lot of goodwill during Bandcamp Fridays during COVID. But my, my reservations were like, this is a company that's still just largely owned by two white guys. I don't see this as like a sterling example of an equitable vision of the future. And, um, and you're still just relying on like a very small group of people to steward the values of independent music. And I think that's just such a mistake of the entire independent music community to just feed that trust to individuals that could have um, very lucrative reasons to sell them out. Right. And um, and then, you know, they did. They sold Bandcamp to Epic Games, who owns Fortnite, and did it in a way where they never had any town hall. There was never any real communication except for a blog after the fact. And that, to me, shows very little respect for the community. Shows very little reason or shows almost no need for accountability. And I kind of, you know, fault the broader independent music community and not holding them accountable more. Hmm. And even if they're relatively much better than something like Spotify, I still think you have to ask the right questions about governance, like real governance power in an organization, just to even have some kind of level of bi-directional accountability. Hmm. Um, And, or, or else we're just going to continue to lose things that are meaningful. So in some ways, even, I think, like, it could have been more beneficial to the broader independent music community to direct pressure towards Bandcamp instead of Spotify, which hasn't moved at all. But what you could have done was, um, you know, imagine a a Bandcamp where instead of the founder selling it to a bigger company, uh, transition it to a worker-owned cooperative. Right. Yeah. Like an exit to community. Yeah. I mean, that would be incredible. And, you know, I think that's a really good example. And I remember them giving the sort of the age old excuse or like the age old rationale being purchased by, you know, this huge company to like, you know, we're going to maintain our independence and now we have access to all of these resources to help the communities that, that we serve. But from what I can tell, I, 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 I haven't seen too significant, you know, of an impact from having, you know, access to that, to that additional capital to serve their community in any more, more significant of a way. I don't, you know, I don't know if you have. No, I don't think, I don't think people have seen much meaningful engagement, but, you know, it could be that I'm not on the, the newsletter. I don't see it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm not, I'm admittedly not on the, on the Bandcamp newsletter either. Um, but it feels like a good segue into, um, you know, to a question I have about something that, that, that is rather topical, you know, over the past few days. Uh, so I was thinking before, you know, our conversation about the time when we first connected and I think I first saw your name in the piece that, that you 
wrote for the Creative Independent, um, you know, writing about how to start a co-op. And in that piece, you, you know, you pushed back on kind of the, you know, traditional venture capital worldview, um, which, which, you know, you said views platforms as kind of a financial arbitrage machine, um, when instead it should be more, uh, you know, trying to build sustainable organizations that serve as permanent vehicles for community prosperity is, is how you wrote it, you know, which is a lovely way to think about it, I think. And, um, you know, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that worldview in the context of, you know, of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, you know, I've seen some sensationalist pieces about like this, this is the death of crypto and Web3. Um, and, you know, one thing that you and I also talked about at one point was when Friends with Benefits, aka FWB, which for people who don't know is a decentralized autonomous organization, when that community accepted uh, some money from Anderson Horowitz's A16Z and a few other funds um, and kind of became entrenched, you know, in that VC model in a different way. They did it in a different way. But, but you know, we talked about that. And, you know, in some ways it sort of set the tone because now lots and lots of you know, organizations within Web3, you know, continue to get their capital from venture capitalists. Um, and I'm curious, A, to, you know, to get a sense if you, if, if you think something like, like decentralization, uh, you know, can work with venture capital in any way and like, are, are they inherently incompatible? Um, or is there, is there a way that they can find common ground and at, utilize the cap, you know, the huge amounts of capital that are in that space. And then I'm curious also if, if what's happening with Silicon Valley Bank, if, if you think like, if and how you think it affects the macro outlook, you know, for Web3's future, I guess. Yeah, I think Silicon Valley Bank collapse maybe feels a little bit separate, um, but I think the, yeah, my, my views um, on uh, venture capital have actually probably evolved and become a little more nuanced. When, you know, Ampled is a project that I think like it felt important for that project to have a kind of ideologically pure approach, which is like there are no there are no investor owners, and that required us. You know, we we raised a tiny like a little bit of money, I think ninety thousand dollars total ever in the history of the project, and that. Um, from tech standards is like not much at all, especially mm -hmm. when it's very expensive to build things and can be competitive at all. Um, and that relied on us basically inventing our own term sheets, which were based on revenue-based loans, um, which did not give any ownership. And we're honestly, um, like required someone to really want the project to succeed more than to get a like a real return on their money. Mm -hmm. But like we Ample did not solve this problem. In in uh, 2019 when I wrote that uh, how to start a cooperative piece for the creative independent, I said something like venture capitalists are the smartest idiots on the planet mm -hmm. and like they have you know like the wrong point of view and we don't need them we don't need their worldview we can just do things our own way and i still like, think that it's largely true there's a, like there's a lot of kind of biases towards one way to do things and it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all and the articles on how to start a startup are mostly written by VCs themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and there should be other models explored. Um, but, but Ample did not figure out how to resource itself to be successful. And it's made me think a lot more on, well, what are the, what are the potential compromises that that could allow things like Ample to 
to not just be like cute protest projects, but be real and competitive and like make people like uh, Patreon be fearful. Hmm. And so there still is no answer to this, but it's why I've been personally interested in Web3 as like ways to, you know, exploring various community token applications. I think I think there's there's ways to to keep collective ownership, collective governance, while more creatively finding ways to resource works. Mm-hmm. Um, and do VCs have a role in that? Um, I think I think opening the window for some involvement, like, might not be the worst thing. I think too much of any form. Of, of financing outside of just revenue is is going to be bad mm-hmm. anyways if you have too much debt that creates mm-hmm. an issue um, um so yeah I, I still think they're that's that's what i find exciting about so many um web3 based organizations now is there's kind of this exploration of there's an excitement around collective governance which is like energizes me there's um real kind of explorations on what an exit to community can Mm -hmm. look like often in the form of very imperfect airdrop based um token distributions but like still i think there's a lot to learn from many of these examples and then like more capital to, to fund creative communities is a is a good thing, um, you know. Like starting Ample, that I one year where I got paid twelve thousand dollars total. Um, there was times where I even like felt food insecure, but was just like kept pushing through. And like the the like personal pain and I had to go through to even just get that off the ground is something that I really don't want other people to have to do mm-hmm. um for for people that have the may have less privilege or it's like just uh, more difficult to even um, think about stomaching something like that um mm-hmm. just like sustained pain and hardship like it should be easier we should find ways that people don't have to martyr themselves to to make equitable organizations and I don't know, like, we don't have all these answers yet, but I, at this point, I actually am much more open to seeing where are the compromises mm-hmm. and and what's important and what are, like, the flexible models of organizational design that we could play with. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely, at this point, not, like, a, I'm not a co-op maximalist. Um, I think there should be more co-ops. Mm-hmm. I love co-ops. Um, but I think there's there can be many different shades of collective ownership and many different shades of collective governance. And I think in general, those are things to say yes to. And it's not uh, something that's that should be thought of as like a, like a co-op as like an ideologically pure version of it. I think like, what we want is we just if you like cooperatives then you agree that collective ownership is a good thing and you want to see more of that mm-hmm. you want more people to capture value they create and so to me it's less about the model itself and more about what the model allows people to do and how can we you know maximize that could you talk about some of the examples that that you've seen you know, maybe over the past year of some flexible models that that have been done well? Well, I think, like, given imperfections, I think Friends with Benefits is very interesting. Um, a, a model with a lot of engaged people talking about governance, a lot of an incredible amount of transparency, mm-hmm. voting on budgets, and 
actually shipping creative work together, throwing a really amazing festival mm-hmm. and, and um, having a lot of really cool, amazing people working on it. I think that's, that's uh, one example. I think like um, examples like uh, I think ENS airdropping tokens or optimism dropping tokens, some of the protocol mm-hmm. type examples are are also interesting just to see how they've communicated um this like this sharing of ownership and um uh, you know like uh, both of those models have ways to delegate mm-hmm. so it's that uh that ex- like less direct democracy i think is probably more reasonable and um um, rather than everyone voting on everything, yeah. So I think like some of the the protocol based airdrops, where like a token is a proxy for ownership, is is interesting to me. Um, yeah, ways ways that groups give other people ways to kind of um, earn their way in is interesting. I I also just think like there's an element of of um the nouns DAO model, which is interesting as well. Like you could also point out things that are imperfect about it, but creating a means to resource the group, um having, you know, a nouns protocol, which is I don't really care for the the auction model being the center of everything, but mm-hmm. but having a kind of like token equals a membership mm-hmm. pass or like a claim to a shared treasury that that you work together on producing work mm-hmm. together to advance X cause or X point of view. I think that's interesting too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, to your this point, you know, I think, I think what friends, you know, friends with benefits ultimately did in kind of, you know, flipping the script on the traditional way that, that companies, uh, you know, try to get venture capital, and you know, instead of going out and, you know, trying to get it themselves, they actually were able to build a community first. And and this is sort of the, you know, same the they also flipped the script. Um, I think on product building as well, in the same way, is that they organized the community around a vision and 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 created a culture that had inherent value, and and because of that value, they were able to bring. They were able to a, you know, decide which products they should build that can create, you know, create additional value for this community, and they were able to utilize that value uh, in order to attract venture capital to them, and then do it on their own terms, which is a really interesting model to to explore and a really interesting organizing principle. Yeah, I think I think maybe Friends of Benefits probably took too much venture capital um and but i could see how the these things are can be seductive um and you could argue that any um community that has a a token is also indirectly reliant on speculation Mm. i guess the really complex thing is how to dance with that right how to use it towards um a benefit that's not toxic um or just purely financial in nature uh, i i think of like biological systems as having different kinds of agents like um you know in any in any kind of in like a ant colony it's like you can't have all ants doing one type of job then the colony doesn't function and if there's if there's too much kind of um financialization then that doesn't function it breaks down but i've just seen firsthand it also breaking down when there's like an absence of any financialization and so that's kind of the the point of view that i come from uh with ample and just trying to at this point, just thinking about how to thread the needle, like how can we keep 
Um, how can we maintain the integrity of a cooperative, but give it the resources it needs to be really powerful? Mm-hmm. Um, and then figuring out ways that different kind of stakeholders within an ecosystem can all power that together. It's like mm-hmm. really not an easy answer. Um, but the, yeah, the reason why I've been attracted to the Web3 space is because I mean, there's so much awful, annoying, cringe stuff in crypto, but like I, there is enough signal there um, that you could point to and be like, there are interesting lessons to take from. There's like um, one element of one project that has done something interesting and another element of another project. And I see groups that have kind of like combined things in different ways. And you could just treat it as like a a sandbox for organizational design. And I just don't, if you're, if you're interested in collective ownership, I just don't see why you wouldn't want to start building and playing in this, this, this sandbox where this, there's just so many possibilities for how you can build an organization. Totally. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that within the context of MetaLabel and what you're doing there, the work that you're doing there and kind of you know, creating a sandbox for all of these different organizations to come to discover what works for them. Well, so I'm part of a squad of six people working on MetaLabel. And how I would define kind of like there's like a an organization that I'm a part of, which is like Capital M Meta Label, and we've also articulated um, this concept of a Meta Label, like a lowercase M Meta Label, as a group of people that come together um, and release work to promote uh, a common kind of cultural point of view. Um, a group that kind of at its core has a cultural bottom line, uh, an aesthetic bottom line, uh, and a, a point of view to advocate. And what we are building is infrastructure for groups, people to come together and release work together. So I see this as like, we are believers in collective ownership. We are believers in collective governance. And we are taking our time to develop and design our own kind of expression of this, but also are building infrastructure for all kinds of groups to get together and um, release work together. And I see like in the context of um, DAOs or more online-based collectives that there's, there's such a focus on treasury like building a treasury, but then what do you do with that? Um, so like we want to build a very rich experience where how groups actually release and contextualize work and think about not only the context of the work itself, but how that work fits within a broader catalog of work. So, so I would see us as like building, building tools for any kind of online collective. And we, we're probably not as opinionated on how those groups form or operate, whether it's you know one person really leading or curating things, we're not really that opinionated about that. Um, but are very opinionated about seeing a world where creativity is more multiplayer, where people come together um, in groups that are formal, informal, permanent, ephemeral, uh, to create meaningful work together. And just as like finding financial resources to, to kind of create um, organizations that might not have a, a clear answer for a financial return, um, we're, we're thinking about that as you know, building ways to support projects that might not have a clear financial return. Like mm-hmm. if you're if you're launching something that really promotes a kind of 
um, worldview um, or like a concept, say all, all of our releases promote this idea of creativity in multiplayer mode. And I think there should be more ways to support kind of, um, ideas that are non-financialized at its core. So maybe that's uh, one of the more, maybe that's a common thread in one way. It's like, like, you know, it's, it's hard to launch organizations that may not have a clear financial bottom line. Like I think of Ample as like an organization that more had like a cultural bottom line to serve, like changing people's minds about things. And, and, you know, that's, that's something that, that Meta Label like seeks to serve is like these kinds of projects and releases that, that um, are really more about like communicating something um, rather than like capturing financial value in all cases, but ways to, ways to resource those and ways to resource new, new um, groups and cultural collectives. Cool. No, I love that. I love that. And I think that feels like a good spot to end. I just have one more question for you. Um, ask everybody this and put you on the spot a little bit. You're going to a desert island. You get to bring three albums with you. What are they? Oh, man. <laughs> um, uh, I would bring uh, My Little Goes to College by Descendants. I would bring... Um, shoot, I would bring... Probably Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness by Smashing Pumpkins. Nice. I would bring... Boys and Girls in America by The Hold Steady. Cool. Oh man, The Hold Steady. I haven't listened to them in a while. I need to I need to put them on after this. Um, cool. Well, thanks so much, Austin. It's been great having you here. If if you know, you could just let people know how they could get involved, or you know, follow along with the work that you're doing. You know, yourself at Metal Label and otherwise. I have no Substack. Um, this Twitter, you can check out. Um, I say I say follow follow MetaLabel on on Twitter. Um, follow me on Twitter if you're on it, um, and uh, or just email me, um, just Austin at MetaLabel.xyz. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Austin. It's been really great having you here. Great conversation as always. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, that's it for this episode of Big Brother and the Hodling Company. I'm your host, McKeegan Voice, and you can keep up with me and all the latest Web3 music trends on Twitter at McKeegan. That's M-A-C-E-A-G-O-N. This show is a production of Decentral Media, and you can visit us at Decentral.io, and remember, only you can prevent and fend off Big Brother.